every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. Welcome to Conversations with Dead People. I'm your host, Paul Smith, and each week, give or take, I'm joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia, authors and educators, to discuss two to four episodes of Joss Whedon's critically acclaimed series, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and its spin-off series, Angel. I've been a fan of both shows since their original runs, and I've spent many years talking to lots of people about them, but I've somehow never done a full rewatch, so this will be my first time going back through all the way from the beginning. I am familiar with the story and where everything is going, but my guests are likely going to be educating me at least as much as they will be our listeners, probably more so. Uh, and talking with me today is Karen Viers, a humanities and science fiction librarian at the Georgia Tech Library. Uh, she's got writing out there on science fiction, fan studies, and gender uh, that's appeared in Fan Phenomena, Lord of the Rings, New American Notes Online, and various edited volumes. Um, I don't think I have any of those things in my collection. I need to add uh, one or all of those at some point. But Karen, thank you so much for joining me. How's it going? Thank you. Good to be here. Always good to talk about Buffy. Yeah. So uh, really quick, what is your history with Buffy? Like, when did you discover the show? Have you been there since the beginning or are you a, a new convert? I came in kind of in the middle. Um, the first episode of Buffy that I ever saw was Restless, um, wow. which, yeah, it's a weird place to come in. It, it was very confusing. Um, so I saw that when I was a freshman in college in a friend's dorm room. I am actually Buffy's target audience. Uh, Buffy and I are the same age, the same year in school. We went to college the same year. Um, so when I saw that, I was just beginning college, and I was like, why does anybody like this show? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean, Restless is, is an odd beginning. Um, yeah. But then I started watching season five. So I picked up watching regularly in season five and then watched backwards um, on DVD back when the Buffy box sets were coming out on DVD. So I, I sort of watched simultaneously with catching up and then watched all the way through to the end of season seven and watched Angel from the beginning when Angel um, first picked up. So that was my way of, of learning about the show and the history of the show, its own history. That's, yeah, I'm. I'm sure. I'm sure there are plenty of people that kind of picked the show up from the middle and went on. But it's just an interesting way to think about it, especially with Restless as your starting point. So, out of curiosity, just so I'm clear, did you watch the series like from Restless to the end and then went back to the beginning, or were you? Did you go back to the beginning and kind of were picking it up as you were watching five, six, and seven? So I watched Restless and I said, what is this? It doesn't make any sense. And I dropped it completely. I never came back to it. Oh, okay. um, and then I had some friends who started watching season five. 
And so I began at the beginning of season five. So for me, I was like, so what exactly is the deal with Dawn? Okay. Um, gotcha. And then I went back to the beginning and started rewatching from the beginning while watching season five. All right. And at that point, once I got to Restless again, it was much, much more legible. <laughs> yeah. Man, my my feeble brain, I'm not sure I could process uh, watching it that way, like <laughs> going back and forth. I'm struggling enough with this podcast <laughs> with the, the way that <laughs> yeah. I'm watching episodes and recording episodes of the podcast. It's it taxes me to my very tiny limits. So I can't, I can't imagine what that must have been like out of curiosity. What it, it was, it was a lot, but I loved it so much that it, it was fun. It was something that I worked in around classes. Yeah. Um, so it, it was a, a good time. I mean, as well in, in college to sort of catch up on things. And, um, you know, this was when Buffy was still on Tuesday nights. So, mm -hmm. you know, we had one new episode a week. So I had those other, the rest the, the rest of the time I didn't have a show I was really that interested in. So that was the time to catch up. Cool. Well, just out of curiosity, since uh, given the way that you sort of digested the show, what would you say is your favorite season? Oh, that's kind of a toss up. I really like season two and I really like season three. Um, I'm one of the people that season six and seven didn't work for very much, although I make a, a, a notable exception for the musical. Yes, I'm with you on that. All right. Yeah, well, that's so interesting. For me, me personally, it, like it all ends with the swan dive at the end of season five, and then the musical just is sort of this free-floating entity. Yes, that it, happens outside of time. Amen, amen. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> I, I was just curious since you started, uh, like you kind of started with season five. I, I was just wondering. A lot of times, people's first exposure uh, will become their favorite. So I just wondered if maybe the later seasons were your favorites, and you were confused how season one and two had led to such greatness, but mm, not in this case. No. no. All right. Well, that's cool. So that's good. Cause we're here to talk about season two. So, uh, but first I've got to give my spoiler warning for listeners. Uh, Conversations with dead people is not a typical rewatch and review podcast. We're going to be exploring the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole. That means spoilers and lots of them. So I recommend if you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the Series all the way through at least once that you press pause on this podcast and go do that. I maintain that things will probably be a lot more interesting and make more sense if you've watched the shows before you listen to us talk about them. But hey, you do you. I'm not here to judge. So with all of that out of the way, Karen, if you're ready, let's go to work. Yes, let's talk about the episodes. And I can say that, you know, if you haven't watched Buffy, you can start at season five and watch the rest of it concurrently. That will work for you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, we're doing another three for, we're talking about three episodes this time. We're doing, uh, episode 218, Killed by Death, 219, I Only Have Eyes for You, and 220, Go Fish. And, um, as has often been the case on this podcast, when I go back to revisit these episodes, it's been a while for, since I've seen, um, my impression was that at least one of these three has been, is sort of a hated episode. It's one of the low points in the series that a lot of people point to, um, that episode, well, we'll see which episode that I thought that was, but I'm actually surprised by how good all three of these episodes were. So, um, what uh, what is your take on these three? We can start at the beginning with "Killed by Death." What do you think of this episode? I like "Killed by Death," and for me, um, "I Only Have Eyes for You" is a real high point in the season and and the series as a whole. 
Um, and I've always felt that Go, Go Fish was uh, sort of a, a lighter episode before we really get into the finale of season when all of those emotional threads come together. Um, so I felt like Go Fish was trying to be, you know, pulpy and have some of the, the kind of classic horror elements, um, but also be a little funnier than mm-hmm. we have until now. We've often been pretty serious. Um, but yeah, definitely the standout among the three of them is I Only Have Eyes for You. Yeah, absolutely. Which uh, we'll get to I Only Have Eyes for You and why I'm surprised that it is um, that I love it as much as I do. But uh, starting off with Killed by Death, um, I, I have to say uh, it takes a very healthy, and I pun maybe intended here, it takes a very healthy suspension of disbelief, at least on my part, to imagine a world where Angelus, the scourge of Europe for like over 100 years, uh, is so easily managed by three relatively inexperienced teenagers in a graveyard. Yeah, that that does invite us to suspend disbelief <laughs> some, but I think it also kind of plays into his interest in, uh, what's the word? He's not interested in bringing this to a conclusion yet. He'd like to toy right. with everybody a little more. That's more fun for him. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not so sure that they're managing things as much as they think they are. Good point. Good point. He certainly made it look like he was going in for the kill on Buffy there, but you, I think you're right. I think he is. Um, he's just toying with everybody at this point. Yeah, I found this episode really topical this, since the flu was so bad this year that that's yeah. uh, still a concern that, that we have, that that's something that came up. Um, when did this air? 1998? Yeah, March 3rd, 1998 was the original air date on this one. Right, so 20 years later, we're still like, ah, oh, somebody's got the flu and they're in the hospital. It's still very much a concern for us. Yeah. Um, so uh, overall, did you like, do you like this episode? Like killed by death. How does this feel? So season two um, is great. I love season two, but one of the, one of, this isn't really a problem. I guess this is a nice problem for a series to have, especially by its second season, but the season feels so like weighty and important and significant. And there's like, there's a very serious through line that's running through the whole thing. The themes of, uh, obviously responsibility, which is an ongoing theme in the series, but like tragic romance. Um, and killed by death. Uh, actually two of these three episodes feel like you already talked about how go fish is kind of a lighter episode. Two of these three episodes, um, feel maybe kind of borderline out of place in mm-hmm. given how serious the storyline has been. And, and uh, Killed by Death was an odd one for me just because it potentially could be a, like a super serious story. It's about the deaths of children. Like, it's pretty right. dark. That's pretty a bleak subject matter. But in the context of a series uh, that is typically focused on teenagers and the whole high school is hell metaphor, and then, like I said, in particular, this season with its whole tragic love and everything this this storyline feels a little i don't know odd to me i agree with you it does seem a little out of place because um we're, we're out of the high school environment we're spending most of our time in a hospital um focused on on buffy we're getting some flashbacks to her as a child which almost never happens right. um they talk about her cousin celia who is 
as far as I know, the only family member um, that we ever hear about of Buffy's besides her parents. And then, I mean, later Dawn, but at this point, you know, Buffy's family is her chosen family primarily. Um, so it's a, a change in that way. Like it's really taking us out of a lot, a lot of the things we've spent our time focused on in this season up until now. Um, but I think the whole idea is that gives us a, a way to look at this illness that she has as a metaphor for the impact of Angel's change and Jenny's death and her own fear and guilt and shame and belief that she's made these bad things happen. Um, so I think it's a chance, uh, trying to be a chance to, to have some introspection um, and to kind of focus on the impact of everything that's happened on her. But it does end up feeling a little jarring, like what, you know, we've got this rampaging demon and uh, and his sidekicks, although I think Spike would not think of himself as a sidekick. <laughs> and And we're taking time out for about of the flu it feels a little incongruous yeah especially again the the weird sort of chaotic recording schedule i'm doing for this podcast is sometimes i have to concentrate to remember what episode i just talked about so it dawns on me that the episode of buffy that came before this was passions right which was the death of jenny calendar so that's pretty jarring to go from that in like directly into this especially when you consider and it's a original airing schedule this episode fell right before a pretty lengthy hiatus oh um, interesting yeah, yeah so this one originally aired march 3rd 1998 and the next one didn't air until april 28th so like a month and a half like six or seven weeks or something like that between this episode and the next one so it just seems odd to go uh, passion with the death of Jenny Calendar and some pretty weighty stuff, some pretty heavy stuff to this. And then you get a six or seven week hiatus before we come back for new stuff. I don't know. Yeah, that that leaves the audience in a really different place than if passions had been the last one. Yeah. Before the break. Um, there, There is good stuff in this episode. I don't dislike this episode. I just thought it was kind of an odd fit and it also seems like it seems the tiniest bit repetitive just because we've already had an episode that dealt with like a child in the hospital and being tormented by sort of an invisible or imaginary monster mm -hmm. um but i i i acknowledge there are differences between those two episodes but sort of tonally and and visually it felt like a little bit of a repeat but there's, there was stuff that I really... Yeah, yeah. I feel like what this episode's focusing on is Buffy's fear of weakness. Uh-huh. Um, that it's, you know, her, her own mistakes and some kind of inherent flaw in her that has made her make these choices and has led to these very terrible outcomes for other people. Um, and that that's that's kind of what she's thinking of as she's dealing with this situation. And she's so determined to fix it. I mean, so incredibly determined to fix it that she makes herself sick again after she's well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess uh, the, like the episode in total, I'm not sure if it really felt thematically uh, of a piece like this, but I suppose if you consider that 
this one of the elements of this episode is uh in fact xander comments on uh how afraid she seems to be like she she we find out she's afraid of hospitals and she doesn't want to stay in one which leads us to the flashback of why and the death of her cousin uh but that uh is a glimpse a first glimpse for xander and and a significant glimpse for us the audience into like Buffy's fears of being fragile and weak and helpless, just like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, but that theme doesn't necessarily run through the whole episode. Like, right. Like that's, I wouldn't say that's the big metaphor of the episode itself, but um, I'm scrolling through my notes here to see, Oh, I want to, I just wanted to comment on what, uh, like when she's admitted to the hospital, when Buffy's first admitted, they're they're commenting on her symptoms and they they say that uh she has you know flu symptoms fever and they also mention possible fractures which um is never referenced again although i guess the nurse at one point does ask uh comment that the swelling has gone down does this hurt and i think she was messing with her arm at that point but i I just wonder what sort of story the doctors are spinning for themselves to explain why this girl with the flu might have possible fractures that must be one one hell of a flu virus that's going around yeah i i think that touches on the ongoing um problem and i think we see this in the other couple of episodes of how there are a lot of adults in sunnydale who are very good at not seeing what's directly in front of them oh yeah so I just I accepted it as one more case of like people who are are not questioning how many of their neighbors disappear in the middle of the night or you know any of these these other weird things that happen. Yeah. Um but yeah, you're right. They they certainly had the opportunity to ask some questions. Um especially, you know, considering Xander was the one who brought her in that that certainly could have been a situation where they were like so what happened? Are you her boyfriend? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Is there a situation here that we need to know about? And instead, they were like, "This is fine." <laughs> yes, I just, I mean, my thought was just, man, they must. That must be a hell of a flu virus if <laughs> kids are coming in with possible fractures from it. But, anyways, um, we we are heading into the point in the series where uh, it becomes much more uh, explicit, much more obvious that there are adult forces behind the scenes that are completely aware of Mm -hmm. at least some of what's going on. Snyder has already let slip once before that he's aware of the weirdness that is going on and is involved in some way in a cover-up. And I, I think it's actually the next episode. um, I only have eyes for you where Snyder lets, lets slip that he not only knows that there's weirdness going on, but he specifically knows about the Hellmouth. Um, yes, I love that moment because it really sets up what happens in season three with the mayor. I mean, right. and what the mayor does could not be possible without the willing uh, participation of people who are in leadership positions in the community like Snyder. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was nice to know, like, they're not just incredibly dumb. Like, they know and they're just not they're not doing anything about it or they're actively participating. Some of them are incredibly dumb. Now, that's I, true. <laughs> again a recurring theme on this podcast i adore joyce but it, early joyce is kind of dumb <laughs> so yeah, early early joyce is heavily into denial i think yes yeah exactly so 
So one thing I really liked about Killed by Death that was a little bit different, and of course I'm speaking as a librarian here, but like they do a lot of research on this show, which is terrific. Mm-hmm. But this time research involved sneaking into the hospital archives right? and not just the Sunnydale High School Library, which is one of the nicest high school libraries I've ever seen in right? the late 90s. <laughs> Super yeah. nice. Yeah. Um, and our, our Monster of the Week for this one really took us back to uh, some horror roots, very – I don't know anybody who's seen this episode who hasn't said, is that Freddy Krueger? Yeah. Well, I, there's even a scene of him like walking through the, the cellar or the basement tunnel or whatever. And he's dra- He's got the really long fingers and he's dragging his long fingers along the wall, which is a scene straight out of one of the nightmare on Elm street uh-huh. films. Yeah. They were very deliberate in, in their choices about that. They were like, yeah, it's basically Freddy Krueger who likes to eat kids. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to think of some of the other good stuff that comes out of this. Well, f- uh, first of all, I want to get your take. Do you think that the writers were sort of dipping their toes in and testing the the Giles and Joyce waters in that hospital scene? When Maybe a little bit, but I think what we're starting to see is the way that the two of them are functioning as Buffy's parents almost. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I, I just yeah. – I wondered since – I don't have a complete sense of how much, like how far in advance some of the character arcs are, are plotted out. So like we, as seasoned viewers, we know where Giles story is going and Joyce's story. And, and we know spoiler alert that it it does not involve a long, long lasting romance between the two of them. But at the time that this episode was being uh, shot, I don't know if they had kind of figured that out. So it felt to me like maybe that was, I don't know if they were actually testing it out to see if it got a response or to see what the chemistry was like, or if they were, if that was just thrown in there to be a sort of tease for the audience, but it definitely felt uh, like there was a little more charge to that than just, Oh, these are two adults that care for Buffy. And so they're being nice to each other. Yeah, I, I would agree, but I also think that it all uh, adds some additional tension um, when Buffy disappears. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and you know, so that uh, they'd had more than simply perhaps a a purely friendly or solely friendly relationship, and so that when Joyce says, "I don't blame myself, I blame you," Mm -hmm. it's that much worse. Yeah. So that's where I thought it was going, and then uh, you know, this is just speculation, but I imagine that somebody was like, "And maybe we could do some more with that." (laughs) Um, So, I believe. Okay, actually, before I get into that, I want to say uh, I thought it was interesting, but probably just complete coincidence, but uh, that Buffy kills Dirk Kinderstad, the monster here. Uh, the way she kills him is exactly the same way that Angelus killed Jenny in the previous episode. Oh, you know, I hadn't noticed that. That is an interesting parallel. I, I suppose uh, we never got a scene uh, where they were where the characters were like explicitly discussing how Jenny had died. Like, I, I don't remember a scene where anyone was like, yeah, her neck was broken or anything like that. But it, that seems like a detail that they would have known. She hadn't been fed on or whatever. But uh, so I don't think that that was necessarily like in fiction. It's difficult for me to square the idea that Buffy did that subconsciously because that's the way that Angelus had just killed her friend Jenny. But 
still watching it on screen, especially considering that the episode we had just watched, we got to see Angelus do the same thing was a little jarring. Yeah, I could see how it would be on her mind. So, yeah. One thing that um, that delights me about Buffy and always has is how self-referential it is. Mm-hmm. And so when Willow needed to create a distraction, I was I was really happy that uh, she discussed she was yelling about her frog fear. The frogs, yeah, that is such a weird thing. And how that thing. comes up, such a weird thing so- for Willow. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I did enjoy that little callback, um, and I can't remember how often that this continues. Like I had completely forgotten that the frog fear was a thing, even, but um, it it kind of pops up here and there throughout the first couple seasons. So I don't remember if it ever comes again, but there's at least, I think once more where she wakes up out of a bad dream saying, don't warn the tadpoles. <laughs> oh my God. I love Willow. I love Willow so much. <laughs> and I, I loved her when, when the doctor's like, not her, the other one. And Willow's just like, no more frogs. I heard just the way she delivers that line <laughs> was great. I adore Allison Hannigan. Um, so I personally think that the best thing to come out of this episode is the Xander and Cordy stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cordelia in particular. Um, this might be the episode when I fully and completely fell in love with Cordelia because this episode, she, she maintains her like selfish. It's all about me attitude when it, you know, from time to time, but she's also very much about speaking her truth to metaphorical monsters of the week kind of thing in this episode. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact, well, I mean, she's got that great line where she's, where she says to Buffy, so this isn't about you being afraid of hospitals because your friend died and you want to conjure up a monster that you can fight so you can save everybody and not feel so helpless. It's a great line. Just a great uh, deconstruction of the entire premise of the series. Um, Yes, it really is. But the best part was when she finally calls Xander on his whole clinging to Buffy thing. Yeah, yeah, she's really um, she's really fearless, and I think that's one of the most admirable qualities uh, about her. Along with you know, as part of that conversation about like, okay, Buffy, this is what you're doing. Um, one of her best known lines, which is you know, Giles was like, so what about tact? And she's like, tact is just not saying true stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, true. Cordelia, true. Yeah. But yeah, she she's uh, feeling out what she wants her relationship to be like with Xander. And it's really um, part of that for her is, is like I, she needs him to know that she sees this and it's not completely cool. And what's going on there? And she still goes and gets him coffee and donuts. Such a such a tiny little scene like after they've had that whole confrontation and she comes back to the hospital later and she just sets a coffee and a bag of donuts down next to Xander and then goes to read her magazine. And you can see on his face that he kind of registers what just happened, that she, they had a, I guess you'd call it a fight, although that's all they really do is fight. But <laughs> they had that moment earlier, but he sees that she like was thinking of him and it genuinely cares. Yeah. Yeah, fight and smooch. Those are the things they do. Exactly. Um, yeah. But yeah, that she's recognizing that this is important to him and that in her very Cordelia way, she's being supportive of that. Mm-hmm. With Krispy Kreme, which is a great way to be supportive, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, and she's also 
you know, I think being supportive of Buffy in her very Cordelia way. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, she uh, in the cemetery at the beginning of the episode, she talks about how this flu is no like this flu is no joke, Buffy. We're all worried about what would she say? We're all worried about your appearance, or like how ugly you are, or how bad you look, or something she like that. Said something like, "We all noticed how gross you are," or something yeah, that's like it. that. Yeah, she cares just in her own way. Just in her own way, like when she showed up and everybody's like, "Here's a gift," and she's like, "I didn't bring a present, but I'm here." <laughs> Right. She should Nobody have told like, me I was like to. her being there is her gift, basically. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. in Cordelia's Cordelia's world, that is present enough. Yeah. Uh was there anything else in this episode? Um I, I notice this seems like a pretty strong run. These three episodes seem like a pretty strong run of Xander making pointed pop culture references. I know he kind I know that's kind of a thing that the series has done all along and Xander does it at least as much as the other characters, but in these three episodes there's each episode has at least one really like I don't know, just significant uh pop culture reference. And this one this one's I guess it's a little bit uh more vague than the next two but in this one he sort of slyly references uh bergman's the seventh seal when he uh about um death playing chess yeah yeah when he warns buffy not to play chess with the bad guy yeah that one uh i went right over my head the first time i saw this and it was later that i was like oh i i famously to I, i my goal in life is to just completely destroy any credibility i have with my audience. So I will admit that uh, I, on my other podcasts, I'm pretty famous for not being the biggest fan of uh, Bergman in general and the seventh seal in particular. My, my co-host on my other podcast is a massive Bergman fan. And uh, he got me to watch the seventh seal. And my re- my reaction to it was, eh, it was all right. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm proud of myself for catching the reference since I'm not a huge fan of the movie that it was a reference to, but yeah, that was the uh, that was this. I would agree with you. The subtle pop culture yeah. reference. Um, since that, yeah, definitely did not pick it up the first time. Um, but they were they get pointier. They do. Uh, in the next couple of episodes. They do. Um, so all in all, I think uh, I, I thought this was kind of a I don't know. Disappointing seems a little too strong of a word, but I, it was just this episode was okay. Uh, there was there was some good stuff, mostly the Cordy and Xander stuff, uh, and a couple of good like quippy lines. But for the most part, this episode was just sort of there for me. Uh, was there anything else about it that you wanted to mention? Um, not really. I, I would agree with you. When I'm rewatching Buffy, um, this is this is a take it or leave it episode as mm-hmm. as part of a rewatch for me. Um, I will say that Dirk Tinderstad, the way that it, it actually feeds was super creepy. Yeah, with the eye stalks that come out. With the eye stalks, yeah. That was awful. Um, and <laughs> it was, and it was worse than I anticipated, and I had forgotten about that um, or perhaps repressed it until I was rewatching um, so that we could talk about this today. And um, I think that's one of the, the real kind of horror moments where they're going to be like, it's Freddy Krueger, but not quite. Mm-hmm. We made it weirder. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
Um, I can't, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I mean, Xander gets to be genuinely, it, it's impressive to me that Xander gets his moment to stand face to face with Angel and not, not cower or whatever. I mean, granted he's in a room, he's in a hospital full of other people, but still it was pretty brave of him. It was pretty impressive that he just got right up in Angel's face. Yeah. I liked, I like that moment. Um, I like the fact that, you know, we get to see what it's like for a Slayer to grapple, um, some with, you know, human weakness, like illness. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, on the whole, this one's a take it or leave it. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to the, uh, the undeniably great episode of this trio. I only have eyes for you. And my first question, uh, to you about this episode, Ben is glory. Oh my God. <laughs> I don't think so. Not yet. Oh, okay. Different, different Ben. Yeah, when different that guy, ben. when that guy popped up and introduced himself as Ben, I was like, "Wait, what?" Like, and for, wait, they're like three seasons too early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For just a, for a split second, I'm I'm not as dumb as I pretend to be on the podcast, but for a split second, I I had to look, I had to focus and make sure that's not like the Ben, right? That's not. We didn't meet that Ben early in the season or early in the series, did we? But no, that would no. have been some incredible forethought. Yeah, that would have been impressive. But to just drop nope. that in three seasons earlier and then never mention him again until it <laughs> exactly. was time. No, nope. just another completely forgettable Ben. Sorry, Ben. Yeah, sorry, uh, Ben. Math Ben, Ben from math class. Ben from math class. Yeah, the one with the desks and the pencils, a chalkboard. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, you you already let slip that you adore this episode. So, what are your what are your thoughts on it? Uh, I, I really like this episode because it's a good way to talk about obsession um, and forgiveness. Because what we're seeing is, and I, I mean, we should note that this is a convenient ghost story that has apparently troubled nobody until now, unless there's just been like nightly murders in Sunnydale High School. <laughs> right. Uh, which could right. happen, and nobody would e- think that was weird. Even if it's an anniversary thing, it would have happened once a year. So it is pretty weird that it just happens this this particular time. Yeah, it pops up right around the Sadie Hawkins dance. Um, so I, I really liked this as a way to um, reverse some of the roles, have some of the catharsis before we get to the finale because we know that that's got to be big and emotional. Um, but to get Buffy into the place that she's ready to go into that final confrontation that she's, um, forgiven herself for the mistakes that she's made that have led her to this point. And the way that the, the roles are reversed between the teacher and the student and Buffy and angel is what lets that happen. And that's what I really love about this because, every single person who's gotten shot up until that point is not a vampire. So they're shot and they die and that's it. The drama is complete. And then it happens again. Um, but because shooting angel doesn't kill him, what it allows him to do is, or rather the, the spirit of the teacher, Grace Newman to come back and create some, some closure to this, to say this was a mistake and you didn't mean to. And I understand. And, you can forgive yourself and I forgive you in, in a way that wasn't possible before that. So, and it plays out three different times. I mean, the first time we have the high school age boyfriend and girlfriend, um, and that gets interrupted and nobody gets shot. And then we up the stakes because the, the janitor who was part of breaking up that first, uh, initial round of possession 
then gets caught into it and played, shoots played the, by John Hawks, one of my favorite actors in the world. Yes, in an early early role where he's yes. just he's um, what was it? I think it was uh, made a note of his name, George. George, George the janitor. George yeah. the janitor. Um, and I love that because it pointed out that just because you've seen a pattern play out badly as a, as a human being, that doesn't necessarily make you immune to getting caught in it yourself. Mm-hmm. So then that goes through to the end and one person dies. So we're upping the stakes. And then with Buffy and Angel, then it has to play through all the way to its conclusion. But then what we know hap- should happen gets subverted because Angel's not able to be killed by a bullet and i just i loved the way that the the choices that they made made all of that possible like if they'd done it any other way it couldn't have worked out yeah um no i totally agree that sort of twist of of the gender switch there uh with the buffy and angel uh iteration of that was fantastic i do have a question about the the way this sort of haunting or possession works um, my on my viewing of this, I read it just the way that you did, where it's actually the spirits of James and Grace. Um, I've read somebody else's interpretation of it that claims uh, that because, uh, well, they claim that this is just the spirit of James. James is the only one who is sort of trapped in this purgatory and is seeking forgiveness. Um, and so what we're actually watching is the spirit of James possess both parties to replay the scenario, which is why, which is what allows for that sort of gender swap at the end. Um, so, so what they're saying is that Grace's spirit is not involved in this at all. It is just James and he's just replaying, uh, his home movies or whatever, uh, to try and get a different outcome and to seek forgiveness. How do you, how do you view it? That's an interesting theory. I don't think so, and here's why. Uh, I don't think that after all these many years, given the way that this plays out over and over and over, that James is going to forgive himself like that. Yeah, that was my – that's my thought as well. Like there's no – there is something to be said for self-forgiveness, um, it, you know, possibly the most important kind, but – I, I don't think that's what this was. I, I feel like in order to break the cycle, it had to be the, a genuine like forgiveness of the other party. Yeah, I, I agree. And I don't think that we'd have this story if James was capable of forgiving himself yeah. sooner. Yeah. Uh, I think that it has to be both of them. And I, uh, my take on the, the swap at the end with when Buffy and Angel are the, the players in this drama um, was that James was most attracted to the person whose pain mirrored his pain. Yeah. Yeah, no, that absolutely makes perfect sense. Uh, so that person had an interesting theory, but yeah, it uh, doesn't hold up. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, don't agree. Um, I am completely, okay, to continue the love of Willow, I have to say I'm completely and utterly in love with uh, Teacher Willow. Um, yeah. I kind of wish that this had been a, a direction the character had continued in for a while. I don't think. I, I agree. I think it was an interesting thing to do 
with the character. I think it was in, and it certainly, I mean, in our next episode, Go Fish, it certainly becomes an important factor. Um, but Willow's good at teaching, and that's something that comes up, you know, at different points. She tutors Percy mm-hmm. um, at, a, at a different point in time. She's good at teaching, and it would have been nice to see that followed through. Yeah. Um, as as a maybe a career choice that she made later on, or or things like that. But it it lets us keep up with it gives it gives us an excuse the audience an excuse to continue to kind of poke around in Jenny's stuff. Yeah. So I've got a question. Didn't Angelus burn Jenny Calendar's computer? Just the monitor. Oh, just the monitor. That's right. Okay, you're right. This is 1998. There's a <laughs> computer is not a <laughs> self-contained unit all right not yet oh not man yet. although i find myself like completely charmed when i go back and rewatch by the the technology at the time <laughs> the big cell phones are the things that keep throwing me off um okay no man you 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 saved it for me because <laughs> I, I thought i had found a major sort of uh snafu or whatever but no you're right the the computer the tower was probably still under the desk so and I love the fact that Angel wouldn't know enough to know that he should do something about that. Yeah, yeah. He probably thought he was burning the computer, too. Oh, man. Me and Angel were right there together. I feel you, buddy. Uh, um, okay, so that explains, then, how she could get Jenny's files and all that stuff. And in the late 90s, it made, you know, it made sense. So we could be like, oh, okay. Yeah. That's part of the computer. It's not the whole computer. Right. So we get a little more fallout for Giles, uh, or we get to see a little more um, of the emotional repercussions to Jenny's loss with Giles. He's just suffocating. Yeah, with Giles just, just, you know, insisting that this has to be Jenny trying to come back through. Yeah, and he really wants it to be, he really wants it to be, and it's heartbreaking to watch because he is, is so incapacitated by this grief and i mean that's i think part of why buffy's having such a hard time forgiving herself for you know making the mistake of loving angel and which led to all of this and she's taking on you know the responsibility for his actions which is totally not her responsibility um because she loves giles and she wants him not to be so so much in pain but i think ultimately it's when um there's all kinds of crazy stuff that happens at the high school to indicate like this is not a nice ghost this is not a friendly ghost you know there's the wasps for one thing right, right. um the snakes cordelia's face gets this whole like burn look on it um uh, at one point when i mean she goes in it's just like poking at like some small cuts and then like, yeah she got bit she got bit burned. by one of the by one of the snakes in the in the uh yeah um and but willow gets sucked into this vortex on the staircase which i mean the cgi actually holds up pretty well and so does the cgi for the wasps Mm -hmm. um but you know as giles is helping her get out of out of this which i mean who knows where it leads to uh, the odds are probably the hellmouth you know that's when he has to has to come to terms with the fact that this this can't be jenny you know, that she would never do this. I mean, when when Willow says Jenny could never be so mean mm-hmm. and he has to and I mean, to his credit, he he takes that he 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 faces those facts. He doesn't continue to say, no, 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 it has to be her. She's just hurt or scared or something. Right. 
Oh yeah, Giles, uh, he gets to deliver the line to uh, Buffy about how forgiveness, you know, to forgive is an, act, is an act of compassion, Buffy. It's not done because people deserve it. It's done because they need it. Um, right. Which is an important thing for her to hear. Uh, it's an important lesson for her to learn in the episode. But um, we're kind of running out of time in this season for this distinction to matter at this point. But I've talked on previous episodes about how the series kind of wants us the audience to think of angel and angelus as two completely different characters but so far the characters on the show aren't quite making that leap right they haven't made, sort of made that connection they still call him angel they don't call him angelus and when they do they mispronounce it but um it's it's interesting to think the, the episode never makes the never states this outright but it's interesting buffy is kind of torturing herself here like she is in the james position because uh, she feels like she killed her boyfriend by giving in to that passion, by, by you know, uh, sleeping with him and giving him that moment of happiness that Angel is dead and now there's just this monster in his place. And so she, she feels like the murderer. Um, you know, when you're watching this episode, you could read it as she's just pissed off that, you know, that this boy killed his his girlfriend or whatever and uh wants forgiveness for it but uh it's much more about she is she sympathizes with him or she she empathizes i guess she's she sees in herself the same thing that uh james is going through yeah exactly i don't think that it's um it's really about justice in the way that she often is like she's way too personally invested in this one. Yeah, another pop culture reference from Xander is when he says uh, the quality of mercy is not Buffy, and he's talking about her yeah. her inability to conceive of James possibly getting any kind of forgiveness. Um, and you know that's a intentional misquote from uh, the Merchant of Venice. But uh, again, I guess that's kind of more vague, or you know, more s subtle of a pop culture reference than I remembered. I, I promise, listeners, there is a, a much more um, obvious pop culture reference coming in the next episode. But uh, yes, definitely. But I mean, I think I think Shakespeare's pretty broadly familiar. Yeah. Um, one thing I liked about the the conversation between um, Grace and James is that they're having some of the same conversations that Buffy and Angela have had, where. You know, Grace is saying you wouldn't be able to have a normal life, and James is saying I don't care about a normal life. I want to be with you, and that's been a debate that Buffy and Angel have had for their entire relationship. Like, you know, you're just 16, you don't know what you're asking for, mm -hmm. but I want to be with you. So, why shouldn't this be what we we have as a relationship? And you know, so I think that one of the things that's important for Buffy here is to see that she's not completely alone in this experience. Like other people have similar kinds of fears and concerns and issues and relationships that they work out successfully or, or don't. And if they don't work out, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're a bad person. There's so, it didn't dawn on me until uh, hearing you talk about it right now, but there are layers to that whole uh I, you know, I don't care about a normal life thing because 
Buffy absolutely does care about a normal life. You, you're, mm-hmm. you are 100% right. She, she is identifying with James, uh, that, that dialogue works for both of those characters, uh, because she doesn't want a normal life. She wants a life with Angel. Um, but aside from that, aside from her desire to have a relationship with a very, very not normal boyfriend, a lot of her character drive has been and, and will continue to be no matter how many epiphanies she has over the course of the series, um, the desire to have a normal life. Yeah, and she says she doesn't care, but I do think that in that way, Angel is wiser than she is. I think he's wise enough to know that she does, and that when she's 16, she should. Right, yeah. Oh, that was the... I knew there was a a slightly more obvious pop culture reference in this episode when Xander says the, I'm dead as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I enjoyed that one. So so that was our our opportunity uh, to to look at the idea of a poltergeist where, you know, you have your angry ghost, but they're angry about being dead. So <laughs> it was yeah. great how they pulled that all together into that one quote. Yeah. So uh, I've commented a few times on, on the podcast, how shocking it is anytime that a gun pops up on this series. Um, and I've, I've maintained that, um, that, that's largely because guns are so rare on this show. Most of the weapons that you see are stakes or crossbows or whatever. Um, and guns only pop up every once in a while. Um, so they're not quite as rare as I remembered because we get a gun in this episode and the next one, <laughs> but, and the next one. Yeah, but you're right. Most of the weaponry is pretty old fashioned. Yeah. Um, but this episode, it was particularly shocking as shocking as it is. Whenever a gun shows up, it's especially shocking when that gun happens to be in Buffy's hand. Like it right. Was in this episode. That's, yeah. That's not at all how she fights. Usually it's right. just hand to hand and maybe a, yeah, maybe a stake. Yeah. So that um, was a little, and I, so the, the gun, you know, appears and disappears as, as it's necessary for the, the ghosts to work out this drama over and over. Mm-hmm. Um, and looking back on it, we've kind of set it up immediately from with the Sadie Hawkins dance where it's um, we're already making it clear that we're going to be upsetting the uh, typical expectations of who's doing what. Right, the gender roles, yeah. Yeah, um, so that when Buffy and Angel swap roles and what would typically be the roles, it's you know, nice foreshadowing, Marty Noxon. Good job. Okay, so you you said the name, so I'll dive right into it. My, my I um, I've already mentioned that uh, in an earlier episode that Marty Noxon is not my favorite person in the on the writing staff, uh, on the mutant enemy writing staff, and maybe on this rewatch I will change some of my opinions on Marty Noxon. It might just be I was. I was a different person 20 years ago when I was watching this the first time. Um, so, but generally speaking, when I see Marty Noxon's name pop up, I kind of roll my eyes a little bit. Uh, however, this episode, this is only like the fourth or fifth, maybe episode, I think that has her name as a writing credit. Um, but this is, I would say this is the first, in my opinion, the first unqualified success, um, of hers in terms of script. Uh, and possibly one of my favorites. Like I, I, I've kind of browsed episodes coming up in the future to see what else she's written. And I know she's responsible for a lot of great stuff, but um, 
this I feel like this is possibly her most unqualified success in terms of the story that's being told. I I completely agree. I really, really, I mean, she's written a number of things that um, became fan favorites. I like The Wish a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but there's just something about this one, how, how neatly the plot pulls together um, that I feel like is very hard to pull off, but also something that you just don't see in a lot of TV scripts. So, yeah, I would agree. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of, uh, well, uh, layers, like I said, there's a lot of layers and subtlety in this that I'm not entirely sure were in uh, her earlier scripts leading up to this. And we'll, we'll see. It's, it's debatable, maybe for me. Other people, <laughs> there may not be any debate, but it is debatable if she reaches this level of subtlety and layering. <laughs> again but that's an argument yeah. for another time yeah i mean I, w- I would agree she also wrote say bad eggs which i think you've probably already talked about on yes. the podcast yeah and it's less subtle it's yes <laughs> there's not a lot of subtlety <laughs> in that example. one um, i mean fun but less subtle yeah um so i guess maybe the last thing that i want to say about this is the uh spike and angel spike angel and drew stuff at the end of the yes. episode yes so despite yes, this, yeah, despite the love that I will go on to form for Angel, the character, like particularly once he moves on to L.A., um, I will always favor Spike. Spike will always be my boy. And watching Spike stand up out of that wheelchair after like being emotionally tortured by Angelus, uh, that was a fist pump moment for me. Yeah, it was a, it was a real high point. And uh, one of the things, you know, as you said, watching, having seen whole seasons, having seen whole seasons multiple times, um, that I really enjoyed about seeing it when I watched this most recently was because he does something not dissimilar in season four, and then he immediately gets zapped by the initiative commandos. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> it was nice to watch him just enjoy that moment of like, oh, yeah, I'm back. And just have that be... A moment that he could in- enjoy and that we know as the audience like oh now you're in trouble right like there are whole new layers of complication that you don't even know about yet that are about to happen <laughs> um i do have a point of order here or I, I i do have a question just because i can't help but pull at the threads of the sort of inconsistent vampire mythology this show sets up if va- <laughs> yes if vampires have no souls uh and in the context of this series myth arc that means they have no conscience which uh the buffyverse often plays out as meaning that they have no emotions what exactly does angelus hope to gain by quote unquote emotionally torturing spike oh i would agree with you that that's just a a very inconsistent point because they actually go into his backstory and how awful he is and how much he likes doing this and how he drove Drusilla mad and that's not the actions of somebody who's getting nothing from it right um yeah i don't know so just a thing i'm gonna keep track of just like my jonathan watch that i've started uh we we we're about to get another jonathan episode but uh i'm just i'm gonna be paying attention to all of the the loose ends or whatever that they set up or the inconsistencies they set up with how vampires are treated. But Yeah. Agreed that they're um, making it up as they go along and sometimes they make it up differently depending on the day. Right. Right. Um, all right. So fantastic episode. Uh, anything else about it that we want to talk about? 
Not that I can think of, except to say, you know, again, it's a it's a real standout among the entirety of uh, all seven seasons, but definitely this season. Right. Um, all right, so let's move on to Go Fish, the first appearance of David Fury in the written by list. Yeah, David Fury, who had gone to be involved in so many different things, including uh, the Mustard Song right. the musical. Yes. Let uh, us not forget. Absolutely. Never forget that. Um, so yeah, kind of a soft introduction, I guess, for David Fury, for someone who will become so significant to the series. This is a little kind of an odd beginning, but everybody's got to start somewhere. Um, yeah. And in this case, it's the uh, it's the soft lead up to because, um, I mean, we had a pretty emotionally hard hitting episode in I Only Have Eyes for You. Mm -hmm. Um, which, oh, one more point about that. The version of the song that they use in the episode. Yeah. Um, I have seen noted somewhere that that version does not, is not, um, available in 1955. It came out in 1959. That is, that is correct. I had that in my notes, but I was going to let it yeah. go. <laughs> that, so yeah, that, we're just going to accept that because it's a really, it's a perfect, yeah perfect backdrop for everything. Yeah. So, the, ver okay. the version they Last played, about... the version they played was by the Flamingos, uh, which was 1959, but the song itself had been around since the mid thirties, I think. So it's conceivable. There would have been a version that the, those kids would have listened to just not that one. Yeah. So we're going to give the ghosts some creative license there. Yeah. They're ghosts. They can break the rules of time and yeah, space. Yeah. To play a version that didn't exist when they, yeah. they went through their, um, their murder suicide situation. The the, the ghost so, the ghost fell right, in love to, with that song. Not not sorry, the kid. <laughs> there you go. Anyways, all right. So, uh, first appearance. So going of, back to go fish. Yeah. Yeah. This is our, as far as I know, our first and only indicator that Sunnydale is near a beach. Well, we in an earlier episode they went to the docks. Oh, that's right. That's so right. So they're they're on the coast, which. When that happened, I can't can't remember the episode title where that was, but they they uh, oh it was the um, oh my gosh it was the one with the judge whatever episode that was right the one with the judge because they have to get on a ship right they were gonna <laughs> deport him or whatever but uh, I, that was kind of a shock to me I can't remember how often the docks or beaches pop up in the series but for some reason I just always I always picture Sunnydale as being inland but I do too apparently it's on the coast so. Yeah, I do too. We do not talk about the beach a lot in um, in the world of Buffy, and you know, in Angel, of course, they're in LA, so we all have a better idea of what that looks like. Cause that's a, a real city, but Sunnydale, we just sort of make it up, and like, there's a bus station when there needs to be a bus station for your yeah, yeah, ink and exchange student who's really a mummy, and there's a dock when there needs to be a dock so that you can you know take part of a demon to the you know four four corners of the world, and there's a yeah. beach when you need there to be a beach. Yeah. Exactly. Stop asking questions, people. Come on, just enjoy the show. Because <laughs> we don't really go back to the beach. This is kind of our, our one beach situation. So, uh, but yeah, we, we kick things off with Jonathan being bullied. Yes, look, Jonathan there getting his, his butt whooped again. Gee, good times, man. Good times. Yeah. It's, it's, Setting him up, I mean, this is a long, slow build, but it's setting him up for some of the problems that we have um, later and really sets him up for stuff like Superstar a whole couple of seasons later yeah. where it's like Jonathan's been so relentlessly bullied over the years that inevitably what needs to happen is that he's going to make a deal with the demon so that everybody thinks he's super cool. <laughs> 
Well, and it gets much worse from there too. But uh, I, I'm gonna go out on a limb. I'm gonna make myself unpopular. This is a joke, by the way, people. But just, just play along. I posit that Willow's harsh interrogation of Jonathan and the things that she accuses him of in that interrogation uh, is responsible for the crazy things that he goes on to do in later seasons. Interesting theory. She plants, she plants the seed in his mind of all of the sort of devil the demon summoning and all that stuff that happens later on down the line i i could see there being fan fiction about this there probably is i apologize i'm kidding people i'm joking (laughs) but i'm not joking about jonathan being bullied i hate it so (laughs) um i'm i'm team jonathan at least at the moment yeah and i mean danny strong does such a nice job with that role too Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. I, i really feel uh, even 20 years later, like, just leave him alone. He's, right. It's not hurting you. And he finally gets named. Okay, so it's official. He's been named uh, different ways in the credits. Uh, at least at least twice the credits have listed him as Jonathan. One of those times they misspelled the name Jonathan, but they've called him Jonathan in the credits twice. But this is the first time that he's named on screen. So we finally... We finally get acknowledgement from one of our characters that Jonathan is a real person who actually exists. So that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And Willow's continuing in her teaching role, which gives her an excuse to talk to Gage, who's our um, member of the swim team with a name. Wentworth Miller. Do, does that name mean anything to you? Do, you? do you know who that is? It's familiar, but I can't place it as to what else he may have done. He... Um, I think the biggest thing people know him from probably is Prison Break, that, sh- that series Prison Break. Mm-hmm. Um, now he's involved in the, the various like DC TV shows. He was on The Flash for a while. I think now he's part of uh, Legends of Tomorrow. Oh, that's probably where I've seen his name pop up. Yeah. And then Shane, yes. we- Shane West was also in there. And uh, he's, he's also a, I guess, reasonably big name actor that has done other film and television i think he was also in a punk band i don't know but i just recognized him immediately so it's always fun when i spot uh character you know actors that i know from other things and had forgotten were in this as much younger people right people who got their start doing a day part on buffy and now they're doing like their headlining shows and stuff like that yeah so, yeah, Willow's still teaching, um, and Snyder is still, you know, kind of lurking around malevolently. Um, <laughs> he, that's what he does. I thought this was just what he does so well. I, one of the things I enjoy about Principal Snyder is how much uh, Armin Sherman is clearly enjoying mm-hmm. the malevolence of that role. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, he's really having a good time playing that part, I, I get the feeling, um, and that's part of what makes it fun. Yeah, absolutely. So this is an episode that's definitely lighter, um, definitely trying to be more funny. Uh, Angel is barely even in it. He's in it just long enough to advance the plot by showing us that Gage has something icky tasting in his blood. Mm-hmm. Um, and other than that, we don't even see him. So like to me, that was definitely the, um, the indicator that the finale for this season was going to be a big deal. Yeah, like we're saving all of all of that drama now that we've had the catharsis of of I only have eyes for you. Then we're saving all of the remaining drama for the episodes that wrap up the season. Um, so I thought this was an interesting, a little bit kind of um, message heavy. 
kind of episode. Like almost a very special episode of Buffy. Right. And then, I mean, like the one for me, that's always kind of the, the, um, the benchmark for this is beer bad, which yeah. would come later Yes. in episode four, but this is a, a very, you know, very special episode of, of, you know, steroids are bad. And just because you're a successful athlete doesn't mean a woman owes you anything, no matter what she's wearing. And, you know, this is, you know, it's felt very message heavy. See the ster- the steroid stuff is kind of a laughable after school special sort of message to me it just felt odd like a, a, a the steroids aspect of it felt like a weird fit it just seems like a weird message for a teen drama in the late 90s to be <laughs> exploring i don't remember in 1998 if high school steroid use was a big topical issue or not but but we can talk we can spill some words on the whole uh the like sexual assault and and double standards stuff that are going on in this episode. I absolutely have some stuff to say about that. Yeah, I I agree with you that this wasn't necessarily like a big thing at high school. It was something that was being discussed in other arenas, and I mean still is. One thing that I thought was very kind of prescient was that um, at one point the coach talked about how his whole sort of doping regimen came from Russian Olympic athletes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so 20 years later, we're all like, oh, yeah, okay. He was True. right. He was right. The coach um, was on to something. But, yeah, the expectation. So there's just like these, these – um, it sort of filters down. So you've got adults who have these expectations, like let's say Snyder, but also the coach. Like adults who have these expectations of how teenagers are going to perform. Um, and then as a result, those teenagers get – some special privileges, like say not doing homework, an expectation of like say girls like Buffy will be available to them whether they like it or not. And then there's also that relentless pressure, though. So mm-hmm. there's this sort of trade-off and this tension. Um, so you can have this stuff, but like they're expecting something from you. Yeah. The so I okay. So I just want I want to talk about I. I Feel free to push back on me on this, okay? If I cross a line, please let me know. I, I'm relying on my much uh, smarter than I am guests to to push back against me if I cross a line. But I want to talk about this possibly being another example of the weird kind of double standard that the series has about sexual assault, um, because Buffy's like like the the attempted assault that Buffy had with I can't remember his name. Was it? It wasn't really Parker, was it? What was it? Or Carter? Was that it? Uh, I think it was Carter. Parker is in. Yeah, Parker's four. later. I we've already had a Ben. It would have been too weird if there had also been a Parker. Um. Anyways, yeah, in in the car. Uh, oh, Cameron. That's what his name was. Is Cameron? That's right. Yeah. So it's dismissed as kind of a joke by the show. Like it's it's in the moment, it's almost kind of light and and jokey. Um. Uh, the adults like Snyder and the coach, they treat it as uh, basically something she's brought on by herself, like in a, in by a, a never more disgusting Snyder, actually, who talks about how she dresses or whatever. That was really, it was really repugnant. Um, And then as kind of inconvenient and distracting by the Scooby gang, when she, again, the show plays it a little bit as a joke because Buffy just won't stop talking about it, but it is odd that, uh, Giles and Xander, 
like like everybody's in the library trying to research this monster and she just won't shut up about how she was almost raped and then Snyder blamed her for wearing sexy clothes. Yeah, I I didn't necessarily see it as a joke, but probably as a realistic scenario uh, in the sense that trying to present a story like that about a star athlete to the authority figures who are invested in that athlete's performance would probably actually play out exactly like that. Um, I do think that the Scooby gang didn't take her seriously, and I think that's an interesting and, frankly, kind of odd choice. Mm -hmm. Um, But we're also in a situation where Buffy is better able than almost anybody to... (laughs) keep people from assaulting her so it yeah her her case isn't isn't the normal case yeah and i and i i kind of anticipate that as being a way that you or some of my other listeners could push back against it so the reason why i'm so hung up on this is that much later on in this series obviously when the writers decide they really want to prove to us that a certain character is just bad, 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 and no good, and will never be good, whatever, they use attempted sexual assault as a way of sending that message, uh, and suddenly that topic becomes deadly serious. And mm-hmm. um, given the way that was treated later, now granted, that's in a later season that is known for being deadly serious about everything, so the tone of the series as a whole has shifted by that point, but still... Knowing all of the problems that that caused in the fan community and and the writer's room and everything at that point, um, I'm just, I'm a little sensitive in early seasons at how lightly this subject was treated. Yeah, I don't think that it got the the deeper consideration that it could have or should have. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that that's also a moment where the way that they were explaining it um, is Buffy's not like other girls. Yeah. Uh, but that sort of leaves every other girl in the lurch, at least until the end of season seven. <laughs> yeah, which is which is another issue. So, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's uh, you know until every girl's a slayer, it's it. What about everybody else? Um, but and you know, insofar as trying to talk about it with people who didn't want to hear it, I I thought that part certainly played out in in a way that it definitely could and does in real life mm-hmm. yeah all right well let's let's move on past that um uh i thought that um telling <laughs> i swear to god people I, lo- I love this show i love these characters and i love this show but another sort of odd thing i feel like for the show uh was them telling was them criticizing xander for running like a woman which is a seems like a an odd insult to use given the show that these characters are living in <laughs> when when their best friend in the world happens to be Buffy the Vampire Slayer it's it's a little weird to insult Xander by telling him how girly he is yeah i i don't quite know why that joke was there either i i mean it was Cordelia that made the joke i guess but still but still, I mean, maybe it was supposed to be the impetus for him wanting to prove something and join the swim team. I mean, I suppose it's there to counterpoint her reaction to him, to seeing him in a Speedo <laughs> later. Right, Like I she guess. really dismisses him as being girly uh, when he's wearing his 
his uh, sweater vest or whatever it was he was wearing in the library and then seeing him in a speedo she has a much different reaction to him but and i i want to say that i think nicholas brendan did a very fine job of um like the the physical acting of this where mm -hmm. he portrayed the embarrassment that xander was feeling so thoroughly oh yeah um which i i thought was really great he he played the comedy of it i thought really well um and it includes one of my my favorite lines in this episode one of the things i think is funniest is where he's like i'm undercover <laughs> buffy's like you're not under much yeah that was great it's like a fair point <laughs> so all of all uh, of their all of their reactions to that were priceless yeah that i think was one of the high points of this episode um one of the the ways that one of the things that didn't work for me as much as um, and that I feel like didn't work as well for the episode was the like okay, here I am undercover guys let's all hang out being guys so who's got drugs I'm looking for drugs does anyone have drugs do we have steroids where are they can I get them like it just it abandons subtlety and that that kind of continued because by the time that Buffy. Um, is confronting the coach. I mean, he's, he's monologuing like a bond villain. Yeah. So I didn't feel like that was the strongest writing. Um, now to be fair, that kind of, it felt perfectly in character with Xander. That seemed exactly like the kind of thing Xander would do. Like we've seen him infiltrate a frat party before. Like, I mean, he's, he's been this sort of clueless and blunt in other undercover missions that he's gone on, but the reactions of the people around him, like the, you're right, the way that played out, it seemed very just sort of rushed and unsubtle. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, I would say that. I mean, there's some definitely funny moments and some really nice lines in Go Fish, but on the whole, I don't think this episode's is uh, remarkable for the kind of dialogue that Buffy became known for. Buffy had one great line. Uh, when she, I'm, oh God, I'm trying to remember what joke she set up. Uh, she's talking to them in the library and, uh, she, oh, man, I can't remember. She, she cracks a joke and I don't remember what the joke is, but then everybody just kind of, or like, uh, Giles just looks at her, just rolls his eyes or whatever at her. And she's like, you're going to think about that later, mister. And you're going to laugh. Oh know. yeah. I recall, I recall what it was. I don't remember what she said either. Some, yeah. Something about protein. I don't, I don't remember, but anyways, um, yeah. So this is the second episode in a row, uh, that featured a gun, actually two guns. If you want to consider the tra tranquilizer gun that Giles carries around, but that doesn't really count. Um, yeah. Second episode in a gun or in a row with a gun in it. Um, yeah. And then we don't have guns again for, I, I don't recall the next time there's one. So see, I, I have to take your word for it. Cause I don't remember. I didn't remember how many times we were going to get guns in the first two seasons. So at this point, I, I guess I would not be surprised if they pop up every third episode. <laughs> I feel like I feel like I grossly underestimated the frequency with which firearms come up in the series, but yeah, well, I mean, and when we get to becoming um, part two, there's a sword. So there's the return to our more medieval weaponry. Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, there's a gun and uh, Xander, this, this is the first time someone gets pistol whipped. I think it is. <laughs> Xander gets pistol whipped. Um, at any rate, uh, uh, so Cordelia's confession of love and support when she thinks that Xander's been 
turned into a fish man. Um, what did what did you think about that? I it was supposed to work. I I really feel like the the I really feel like this the script was setting it up so that this would be a tender moment, but also a funny moment. And I just it really for me personally it fell flat. I did not find it particularly charming or funny. Oh yeah, I I, I wanted to, but it just wasn't there. Maybe it's just because I'm coming off my the the high of um, uh, killed by death, where I really like officially fell in love with Cordelia. But I, I it did it did kind of play for me in this scene. Um, you know, the show wants you to think that it's being played for laughs, but if you stop to think about it, that was actually Cordelia. Like Cordelia, in the moment, Cordelia thinks that's real, and she's telling him, "You know, I'll still date you, no matter what you look like." I mean, it's pretty. That is pretty. It's a goofy, silly moment in a goofy, silly episode, but that is a pretty powerful statement coming from Cordelia Chase. So, you know, your your mileage may vary, but I kind of, I'm on a Cordelia high right now, so I was like, "Oh, that was that's so sweet." Like Cordelia is really growing up. Yeah, I think it's. I think part of what made it not really work for me is the way that Xander sort of appears at her elbow and is like, "That's not me," and then run. Like he did not. He must have heard part of it. Yeah. But never, never addresses any of that. Yeah, that's true. So it felt. It ended up feeling like a throwaway. That's true. So uh, a couple more, a couple more like funny. <laughs> I'm going to get in so much trouble. A couple more like funny threats of gang rape and sexual assault in this episode. There's the coach um, feeding Buffy to the boys. Uh, when, and he's like, well, they've already had their dinner, but boys have other needs. And uh, yeah. then, you know, she's got the line. Great. This is just what my reputation needs that I did it with the entire swim team. Ha ha. Funny joke. But is it really, is that really a funny joke? It certainly wasn't to me. Um, but it also, I think, touches on the kinds of fears that going back to those high school fears touches on the fears that like, what are people saying about, you know, a particular girl and what she has done or not done and what that means about her as a person. Like, I definitely think that it brought up that, but, um, yeah, as a, as a joke, that one fell flat. (laughs) We're, oh my gosh, we're so sensitive in the in the 2000s um and then to sort of flip the tables there's uh after the coach falls in to the water uh and the the fish creatures are attacking him we don't get to see what happens but the fish creatures are attacking him buffy's got the line those boys really love their coach um again played as a joke and i'm sure what you're meant to take from that and what was probably meant by the writer is that you know they're holy cow hello ember welcome to the podcast um is that they are you know eating their coach he's getting eaten by these fish creatures however not two minutes before that there was the comment that well they are already ate they're not hungry they're looking for something else and then buffy's like those boys really love their coach so it's it's a little unclear um, what is happening what they mean there. i took it is like they certainly blamed him for their their current um fish condition and that they were angry and violent because of that yeah 
Um, I mean, yeah, as a line, I was sort of like, oh, I'm not sure what what she means. I mean, it's it's almost guaranteed we were meant to believe that they were killing and or possibly eating their coach. But you could read that as really much more disgusting and <laughs> and dark than them just killing him. And the implied sexual frenzy that was about to take place with Buffy has now been applied to the coach. But maybe that's just me. Um, uh, yeah, Go, Go Fish was... Um, it, it feels sort of like a, the filler before something really big happens. I think that it was, you know, intended to give us some levity in between um, serious emotional stuff. And that, I think part of its, its struggle is trying to be funny in the middle of serious, serious emotional stuff. Yeah. I appreciate what they were trying to do with having one more kind of lighthearted monster of the week episode before we get to the, like the genuine, darkness but it is the season uh, yeah i don't know i said it at the top of the show it feels like the season has much more of a cohesive plot drive to it and what that means is that these occasional sort of wacky monster of the week episodes feel a little less significant so yeah, and this one actually, and this is not a, a criticism. This one had a very pulpy kind of feel to me. Like this is the the fishman monster is a very like pulp sci-fi kind of villain. Yeah, I mean the the pop culture reference that Xander gets. Well, he gets two in this. He makes a Jaws reference, so that's probably his pop culture high water mark in my opinion because I adore that movie. But there's also the creature from the Black Lagoon reference that's made. <laughs> Which is a great joke. At Cordy is the one that the one that actually says she says creature from the blue lagoon. The creature from the blue lagoon is Brooke Shields. Yes, that was a great line. That was a great line. <laughs> which is great. Um, and he's there's a Lionel Richie reference which I thought was great where um, they're talking about the number of times that Xander's gotten to soak in like fish inducing. Oh yeah, once, steam. twice, three times a fish man. <laughs> yes. Yes. Wow. And another um, another one was a reference to a palm olive. I think it was palm olive commercial. Oh, um, you're soaking in it. Yeah. Dang! Look at you. I I heard yeah, all of those and I kind of I kind of got them in the moment, but really I really creepy when you realize that's what's yeah. happening. Yeah. Yeah. So other people will see this episode and and uh, see creature from the black lagoon. I personally look at it and I see the shadow over Innsmouth. Are you familiar with that? That one I'm not. The Creature from Black Lagoon, yeah. Uh, the Shadow Over Innsmouth was an H.P. Lovecraft story, uh, which featured uh, creatures just like this. Uh, fishmen creatures, people who were slowly transforming into creatures from the Black Lagoon kind of things so that they could swim out in the ocean and worship their elder god. Hmm. I don't think that's what these fish creatures are going to be doing. No, I do have to ask why... if. <laughs> they were terrible swimmers. <laughs> I realize it's just actors in heavy prosthetic makeup, but watching them try to swim out into the surf, <laughs> they were terrible swimmers. I can't swim. I, I would die if I was in that surf. But even so, watching them, I was like, man, those are the clumsiest like uh, amphibious fish creatures I've ever seen. 
But, yeah, right. I wonder if they're gonna be like Marcy and just like you know they're gonna they're gonna be they're gonna go off to some uh, unspecified yet threatening kind of future like Marcy the Invisible Girl. Right. Yeah. Who goes well, to I CIA school. I saw someone somewhere mention that there uh, there are supposed to be four of those kids. Um, I guess there were four of the fish creatures down in that pool or whatever, down in the, in the water. But when we see them swimming out into the ocean, there's only three. I, mm. I, I don't think that's actually significant, but it was an interesting point. If that's true, I don't remember if there were supposed to be four, but we only see three swimming out at the end. So maybe one of them is still in the sewers of Sun, Sunnydale. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe the other three, you know, they're out there somewhere. Yeah. Like that, that, that's sort of the uh, return to the, the reminder of the horror roots of Buffy. Like there's closure in terms of our immediate story, but like they're not gone. Right. Like with Jaws, like, you know, there's still other sharks. Yes. So, so there will be sequels and the third one will have the tagline this time it's personal or whatever. Oh God, that's terrible. Jaws 3 was awful. Um, so at this point in the series, this is the point in the series when I want to ask how much of the weird science stuff that goes on in Sunnydale, like Frankenstein's football player and robotic Ted's and fish steroids and all that stuff, how much of that works the way it does because of the Hellmouth and how much of it is just part of the larger hidden paranormal universe that like the Buffyverse is set in? Yeah, and some of it, like this one, was very kind of typically science fiction. Like there's a scientific explanation for what's happening. Yeah. Um, it's maybe not science that we could do right now, but, you know, hence the science fiction. But it's it's plausible that it could happen one day. And then some stuff is just sort of the idea that like, okay, this is magic. Like we just accept that it's magic and that's how it works. So Buffy as a series exists in both of those uh, possibilities that you have science fictiony things that are, are potentially real or could be real. Um, like it's possible that there's a, an artificial intelligence and a robot that's good enough at simulating human being to date your mom. <laughs> well, especially that's when your mom is, Especially when your mom is as clueless as Joyce. Right. Particularly if your mom is not clued into, you know, details of all of the weird and crazy and uh, paranormal things happening around her. Um, so, like, that's that's science fiction-y. But there's also that frees us up, too, to have stuff that's completely implausible. Like, we don't really have a scientific explanation for the vampires. Like, they're just, they just are. They're there. We can just sort of hand wave it and say the Hellmouth made it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that having both of those options gives Buffy a really wide range of things that can happen, which is one of the things I've enjoyed about the show a lot. Agreed. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I th think that's all I've got. I'm scrolling really quickly through my notes. I don't, uh, I complained about the abusive Jonathan, which is the whole reason I was here today. So, <laughs> we're, so you can check that off. Yeah. So I can check that <laughs> off. Um, oh, I want so one last thing I want to ask you about, and I don't know if you took note of this or not, but in the scene when uh, when Willow is pointing out that Thomas Jefferson was the one responsible for the quote 
uh, like all men are created equal, whatever. And Cordy, uh, Cordy had said, uh, kept slaves. He said he kept slaves, remember? Kept slaves, remember? Uh, but that line was clearly dubbed. Like, I don't, I, I don't know if you noticed this as you were watching, but that is not, at least not fully. I think maybe the line she actually says, she, it looked like she says kept slaves and then something else. But what you heard was kept slaves, remember? So I just wonder if anybody, if any of our listeners know what the actual original scripted line was there and why they had to overdub it with that. I noticed it was dubbed, but I've never been able to determine exactly. I mean, my lip reading skills are nothing uh, remarkable. So, yeah, I don't I don't have any insight on that one. But it's a rare case of overdubbing like that. Usually, um, I mean, when I've seen interviews with actors who've worked on Joss's shows, what they have said is you read, you memorize your lines and you repeat your lines word for word. You do not ad lib. Oh, wow. So... I wonder if maybe they changed a line. Or that that might be an explanation. Yeah. All right. Um, and I I guess just in closing, I'll say that this is a we need to bid our fond farewells if we have any to the whole. In every generation, a chosen one is born. Because I believe, if my research is correct, I believe this is the last episode that features that in the opening. Hmm. Which means I have to take it off of the front of this podcast. No, I, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but uh, Just going to carry on. It's just going to carry on uh, forever to annoy people. That is a question I have for my listeners. Um, is the intro music too long? I can shorten it. It's like 55 seconds. The whole intro music is 55 seconds. That seems appropriate to me, but it might be too long. If my listeners don't want to hear that music and just want to cut straight to my, the, my dulcet tones, let me know. Anyways. <laughs> All right. Well, I, yeah, I think that's that's everything I've got. It's been a, a great opportunity to talk about um, Buffy, which is one of my favorite things to do. So thank you for the opportunity to be here. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you're on the list for some uh, future episodes as well. So I'll definitely have you back again if you're still willing, if I haven't driven you away. Sure. No, I'd be glad to do it. All right. Excellent. So uh, you want to let the listeners at home know how they can find you online? Absolutely. So the best way to reach me is going to be Twitter, where I'm at Karen Byers, K-A-R-E-N, V as in Victor, I-A-R-S. So pop up, say hi. Uh, be happy to discuss Buffy, science fiction, libraries, uh, any one of a number of other interesting things. So look forward to hearing from you, your thoughts about the episode or anything else you'd like to talk about. Very good. Thanks. Um, and thank all of you at home for listening. You can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website conswithdead.com, or you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate us or write us a review. There's uh, more than a couple Buffy podcasts out there, so any kind words that you could spare will really help us stand out from the crowd. If you've got any questions for me or any of my guests, or if you'd just like to share your thoughts on anything we've discussed, please join the conversation. Drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at conswithdead or join the Facebook group Conversations with Conversations with Dead People. That's not overly long and confusing at all. Um, that is where I would like these discussions that we have on the podcast to continue in a larger forum with more participants. So please uh, come in and share your thoughts. Next week, Alexander 
Lester, graduate student and teaching associate at the Department of Popular Culture at Bowling Green State University and previous guest on this podcast, um, makes his triumphant return to the graveyard to discuss the season finale episodes, Becoming Part 1 and Becoming Part 2. Until then, Gur-Arg, everybody. Gur-Arg. Are the stars out tonight? I don't know if it's cloudy or bright. Come on.